This is Chelsea Wingo. And I'm Amy Covell. And this is our podcast, Hashtag Life Goals. Approximately 53% of Americans have one or more close relatives who have an alcohol dependency problem. I think even if you don't understand addiction, try to educate yourself a little bit. Each week we examine one of our life goals and figure out what steps we need to take to make them a reality. When you get sober, no one knows what to serve you. I needed to pick up the pieces. I needed to clean it up. So come join us. It's going to be fun. Hello, everybody. I'm Amy Covell. And I'm Chelsea Wingo. And you're listening to Hashtag, hashtag Life Goals. Today's episode, Hashtag Sober. This will be an interesting one. I'm curious to see where this will go towards because I feel like this is a little bit more... This is a heavier topic. It is a heavier topic. That's what I meant. So. Yes. And it is a topic very close to me because as I have discussed, I am an alcoholic and an addict and mm-hmm. um, and I've been clean for two years. So this is definitely something that's very wrapped up in my hashtag life goals um, mm-hmm. because I could not even attempt to reach my life goals if I hadn't taken care of this part of me. I've known you for a while now. Yeah, and you've known me before I got sober and yeah, after the pre, I've the pre, sober. The pre, not, not the pre and I post. Want, I don't want, well, not post because you're still currently sober. Well, not cur- That's you, true. You're, you're but currently pre, but sober. Yes, you, yeah. you know me dur- during alcohol and after alcohol. But yeah, at the same time, um, I think because in our earlier stages of our friendship, um, we weren't hanging out as often, so I didn't right. know much of that side. But even if I got glimpses of it, I could not tell that if it was... Yeah, Again, if I, I think it snuck up on you a little bit more, especially because like the first like year and a half we were friends, mm-hmm. I was your boss. Yes, and so exactly. we did not really hang out outside of work. Mm-hmm. And even when we hung out outside of work, you were seeing me in environments that I didn't tend to drink a lot in. Okay, so I did not know that. For me, I was an at-home alone drinker. And so you and I would go to concerts, yes. we would go to events. And when I'm out with my friends, I didn't feel the need to drink much. Yes, I would drink and socialize, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like my priority. Yeah. And maybe some of that just came from the fact that I was cheap. <laughs> and it's way more expensive to drink at the bar than it is to buy a bottle and drink at home. Yeah, I kind of agree with you there because even though... I mean, growing up for me personally, I was like, no, no alcohol and that kind of thing, like a little bit. But when I got to that age and I actually started to partake, I was more, I wanted to drink at home because I knew I was in a safe environment and that right. if so something for you, were it was to a happen, safety thing. Yeah, yeah, it was a safety thing. Oh, I know. Cause like you, the very, the few times that you would get drunk in public was usually because you were with me. It was because I was with someone safe. I and was you with could tell group. your mom, yes. don't worry. Amy's with me. She'll make sure I get home okay. Because exactly. I've always been that mothering. You have type. that energy around you. It just—it's very natural. I do want to say, um, for the, kind of the very beginning, if there's anything that we talk about or say that's triggering, that is little like. I don't want to say makes you annoying. uncomfortable. Makes you uncomfortable. We apologize in advance. This is not to like point anybody out. This is just to have an open discussion surrounding right. this. But I also will say that sometimes being uncomfortable is good. Yeah, no. No growth comes from being comfortable. Yeah. You have to go into the, you have to walk into the uncomfortable to grow. Yeah. We are speaking with an open mind. All we ask is that you listen with one. But before we get too heavy deep, Amy... How are you doing? I'm really good. It's been a really busy week since (laughs) I saw you. So right after we finished recording last week, Mm -hmm. I was still here in the studios when I got an email asking if I was available for a shoot a few days later. Nice. So I did book that shoot. So I shot for three days over this last weekend. Um... Really crazy, but it was amazing to be on set again. Everything went well. The cast and crew were great to work with. I really enjoyed myself. And now I'm in heavy, heavy pre-production for the shoot I have coming up three days from now. Oh, boy. (laughs) So, you know, Hollywood's finally awake. It was a much longer slumber this year. Yeah, they finally awoke. Like, could have been a sleeping beauty. (laughs) And I could definitely tell by like when I was when I was hiring crew for this particular for the project I'm about to go into, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people who have been free all 
you know, all year long are finally like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm booked. Oh, I'm booked those days. Oh, I'm booked two of those days, but I could give you the other two. So that's good news, though, because Mm -hmm. now that I'm back on set and I'm already and I already have another project that's coming up in a few days. Yep. I just hope they keep rolling in. Like now I'm on a roll. I hope this isn't like, okay, I get to spend like 10 days on set this month and then nothing for the next two months. Like Mm. I hope that it just keeps coming. So it's been busy and the rest of this week will be really busy because on small independence, you wear many hats. So Mm -hmm. I was the first AD on the shoot I did this last weekend. And then the one I have that starts this weekend, that one, I'm the line producer and the first AD. So you know, I'm dealing Ooh, with the boy. payroll company. I'm dealing with SAG. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow I have to go and do what's called surveying for um, the neighborhood that we're filming in. I have to go and talk to every single neighbor and have them <laughs> sign a piece of paper. Whoever was the head of watching everybody in the dorms, would they have to go through me like, R.A. Hey, this R.A., thank you. The Marcus R- was an R.A. Yes. Our Mar- producer was an R.A. Yes. R-A. But the writers the R.A. when they go through be like, hey, so this is happening over here. We need you to let, you need you to know. So that way, in case something happens. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Nope. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times <laughs> on smaller shoots, I don't have to do that. But yeah. on this one, it, it's being required of us by Film L.A. Mm-hmm. So that's what I have on my plate right now. So all great things. Great. Everything's going amazing. We have a whole bunch of new listeners thanks to the cast and crew Yay. of my last shoot. That's fantastic. How is your week? How are things going at your new side hustle? Uh, um, before the side hustle, <laughs> my main thing this past week was DMV because yeah. I basically had to go in for... My driver's license was sent to the wrong address, even though I got it renewed in December. Right. You had updated it to your new address, but yes. for some reason it didn't take. No. And so, so it went it's to been the floating out there in the ether. Yes, yes. Whoever has my ID, just get rid of it now because there's a new I one hope being whoever sent. has your ID has donated to an <laughs> underage girl in need. No. Don't advocate that message, Amy. Moving on. So I had to go to the DMV. Luckily, where I went, someone gave me a hot tip to go to the one in Inglewood Mm -hmm. because that wait time was not as long as like five, six hours. I was there there like less than two hours, which was great because I had a couple things other than the driver. Yeah, less than two hours. That's amazing. Yeah, at that. And then the other thing was that at UCLA, the professional program, they just had the deadline for their script competition for the scripts that you write through the first two quarters. Because I was so tired, Saturday I spent it doing errands and just lying around because I needed the rest. And then I stupidly went from the afternoon of Sunday till about five in the morning on Monday working on the script and I still only got like halfway through my rewrite. So then I spent the entire day Monday reworking that script. And by the time I had to leave for my job to set up for a panel, I still had to finish it. So then I just turned it in literally 15 minutes before the deadline, which was 1159 PM. So that was (laughs) my weekend. Oh girl. So I, yeah, I, in a way somewhat pulled an all-nighter not it was the first time in a while so if i'm sounding a little delirious and loopy it's because i'm trying to get back on track but basically well, that's not gonna happen anytime soon because you have vacation coming up you already have family in town that, that is true yes i have vacation coming up family's in town because my birthday is this weekend so we're gonna have a little getaway and you know have some fun yeah yeah but then back to the part-time job that's going very well um he we're communicating well we're working things and we're kind of figuring out the workflow for progressing forward so cool yeah so so we're ready to get into some research yes we are and for this time around i think you should do the honors for the research if that is all right with you and that is fine with me so um it was a little harder to kind of pick out what to research on this topic so i decided Mm -hmm. to kind of stick with the statistics. Yeah. And you know, when you and I discuss this, we're like, let's look at some of the statistics. Yeah, that makes the most sense. So first we're gonna we're gonna start with the scary. Oh boy. And then we're gonna go into just kind of the baseline and then a little bit of hope at the end. Ooh, it's kind of like a, it's already starting to sound like a film of like the scary, the middle, and then the hopeful ending that you right? always I'm gonna wish take for. you on a roller coaster. So first, relapse. 
So mm-hmm. relapse is when someone ha- is in recovery, has gotten sober, and they relapse and fall into using drugs or alcohol again. Mm-hmm. Now, the addiction center, they place the potential for relapses at a staggering 90%. And I know we, uh, we often say that, you know, relapse is a part of recovery. So their recommendation is that if you relapse, you know, just remember it is not the end of your recovery world. It is merely a misstep. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, practice makes perfect kind of a thing. Yeah. We're not going to do everything right. No. We're human. But the National Institute on Drug Abuse, they put the relapse rates for substance use disorders at about 40 to 60%. So mm-hmm. I would say the truth lies somewhere in there. Somewhere in between those Somewhere in numbers. between those statistics. Um, I think the 90% is pretty high. I would yeah. say it's higher than 60%, though. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's lies, the truth is somewhere in the middle. All right, so statistics on alcoholism. We chose to focus most of the statistics on alcoholism versus Substance use, just because the substance use statistics are always broken down by all the different types of substances. Yeah, it would just be like a big like pile. We would be here all night and into next week if we wanted to cover everything. It would be like four episodes if we broken it down. So Right. (laughs) And I also feel that alcoholism is something that touches even more lives than substance abuse disorders it's something that more people are have people in their life that they know are struggling with this yeah so i'm hoping that this helps our listeners to connect to the subject even if it doesn't personally touch them yeah because it's ex- exposed to kind of everybody at Correct. a certain age yeah but just so you know the statistics on substance abuse and alcoholism are very similar because they are both addictions and addiction is a disease and no matter what form it takes whether it's alcoholism substance abuse porn gambling um eating disorders even they all have very similar characteristics Mm -hmm. and therefore they're very similar paths um, and very similar statistics. Yeah, the skeletal structure is the same, but like the meat and bones is a little different with each one. Right, right. It might be a different activity or substance, but um, at the core, they are all very similar. So Project No says that in the United States, nearly 14 million adults or about one in every 13 adults, that works out to be about 7%, abuse alcohol or have an alcoholism problem. So think about Mm -hmm. that in your life. One in 13 people around you most likely have a problem with alcohol, if not with other substances. Alcoholism and alcohol abuse also seem to affect more men than women. It's about two to three times more men. Female minority groups, though, are more likely to have a problem with alcohol. The highest drinking rates among females is actually among Latina female high school students. This 36% consume five or more drinks in a short period. So that is the female minority category that actually has the highest percentage. Mm. But 40% of American Indian adult women are dependent on alcohol. And that's true of just that entire culture. So alcoholism and addiction, actually, it's genetic. And they find that really high instances among American Indians, for whatever reason. Really? Mm-hmm. Approximately 53% of Americans have one or more close relatives who have an alcohol dependency problem. In addition, 43% of American adults have been exposed to the problem of alcoholism in their family. So not just someone close to them, but someone they're related to. Again, it's genetic. Most people know at least one person in their life who either has had problems with alcohol or is an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, this is a substance that really touches almost everybody. And approximately 79,000 deaths each year in the United States are attributed to alcohol problems. It makes alcohol the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States. Now, drug addiction, they had statistics for that as well. But again, they separated out by each individual drug, which makes it a little bit harder to fully get a grasp on. But it's all addiction. The Society for the Study of Addiction released a global statistics report on addiction. They used data from the World Health Organization and the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. This is the first report of its kind. And they found about 240 million people around the world are dependent on alcohol. 
More than a billion people smoke and about 15 million people use injection drugs such as heroin. So there's kind of a cross selection Mm -hmm. for you. The National Institute on Drug Abuse says that genetics, including the, the impact of one's environment on gene expression, account for 40 to 60% of a person's risk of addiction. So I remember growing up, they said, basically, if you have one parent who is an alcoholic, you have about a 50% chance of having the gene. If both of your parents are alcoholics or have alcoholism in their family, you have a 100% chance. It runs on both sides of my family. My mother is not an alcoholic, but it runs on her side of the family. Her father was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. My dad is an alcoholic and an addict. And so I grew up knowing I had a 100% chance of being an alcoholic or an addict. And that didn't stop me. And that's, I think, one of the important things for people to understand is that you can have all of the knowledge in the world, but that's not going to necessarily stop something from happening. It's not going to prevent us because this is a disease that has both mental and physical characteristics. Thinking back back on some people that I knew Uh back in the day and how they they're not here now because because of of this disease. Yeah. Yeah. And then like there's some that I was close to some that I was not close to like no one really, really close. But well, and the hard thing is, is that a lot of people who are not really exposed to this, like on a very close personal level, and even some who are, don't truly understand the the nature of this disease. Mm-hmm. And they think it, it is as simple as in, well, just don't drink. Yeah. Well, well just don't use. Yeah. And the thing is, is it goes beyond the physical addiction. Yeah. You know, there's... There is literally something different about our DNA and about how our brain processes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I I apologize if I get emotional, if I start crying. Maybe if we get into the the deep stories that might be here, I might get a little teary eyed because I'm a little, um, I, 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 I wear my emotions on my chest, on my sleeve and... (laughs) <laughs> There's hope. At, there is light at the end of this tunnel. There's light okay? at the end of the tunnel. Okay. All right. Environmental factors that may increase a person's risk of addiction include a chaotic home environment, abuse, having a parent who uses drugs or alcohol, peer influences, living in a community that has an attitude towards using drugs as being okay and normalizing it, mm-hmm. or having poor academic achievement. So... All of these can be signs of a lot of different things, but they also increase someone's risk factor in falling to addiction. Teenagers and people with mental health disorders are also more at risk for drug use and addiction than other populations. And the last one about usage statistics is the CDC says that in regards to heroin, individuals addicted to alcohol are two times more likely to also be addicted to heroin If they're addicted to marijuana, they're three times more likely. And if they're addicted to cocaine, they are 15 times more likely. And then it gets higher. People addicted to prescription drugs are 40 times more likely. And that really brings the fun. Like you hear all the time about how there is a prescription drug crisis in this country. This is what they're talking about. So they have actually made it illegal for doctors not to prescribe you something for your pain. Like doctors have been getting sued for years for not treating the patient to their satisfaction. Mm -hmm. The person comes to you and says, I'm in pain. And the doctor's like, well, I'm not going to give you any more opioids because you shouldn't be on them. And then the person would sue them for malpractice. So now they have been instructed that if they're asked for medication, Mm -hmm. you know, that for the most part, they're supposed to just appease their customer essentially. Oh man. And the thing is is that opioids specifically change your brain's chemistry. So people who don't have the addiction gene can have an addiction to opioids. Unlike all the other drugs which is really hard to have just a physical addiction if you don't also have the addiction gene. Mm-hmm. With opioids it actually changes your brain pathways. So say you're taking Vicodin for some sort of chronic pain. Mm -hmm. You should not be taking it for chronic pain. 
it is supposed to be, these types of opioids are supposed to be used for acute pain right after a surgery or an injury. But too much in this country, we take them for chronic pain. And you'll be like, well, I can't stop taking it. I'm in pain. No, your brain is telling you you are in pain, so you will give it more opioids. Like it literally changes your brain chemistry to send pain signals to you, so you will take more drugs. If you are someone who experiences chronic pain, I would work with your doctor to get off of the opioids, and you will be amazed after about a month of being off of them, all of a sudden your chronic pain will go away. The pain is an illusion. It's your brain asking you to give it more drugs. And the problem is, is if a doctor actually does stand up and not provide somebody with the drugs they're asking for, not only can they be sued for malpractice, but then that is what causes people then to go looking for them illegally. And heroin is a lot easier to buy on the street than prescription pills. And so even if their doctor is still prescribing them, there are limitations to it. You'll, you'll go to the pharmacy all the time and they'll say, you can't pick up this prescription. It's too soon. It's too soon because they're narcotics. And so they're trying to watch out for that and trying to limit it. And again, that's what pushes people to then look for other ways to get it. And that's how people quickly go from using prescription pills to using heroin. People that would never have imagined they would ever use an injection drug will find themselves shooting up heroin. So the opioid crisis in this country is a real thing, and it is the fastest growing drug addiction in our country and affects people. It affects all of the people who carry the gene of addiction, and it affects everyone else who doesn't too. So that's the scary one. <laughs> it's, it's like you can't win in a sense. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, please, you know, be aware of of what you're putting in your body, really think about whether or not you need to take that extra painkiller or can you just take Tylenol in between and take the opioids at night to help you sleep after your surgery. Like your doctor is there to help, help you, but you got to take some control too, because it's, you know, it's a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. All right. Last statistic I have for you is on participation in a recovery program. So this refers to like a rehab facility or a 12-step program such as AA or NA. So the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration said in 2017, 20.7 million people aged 12 and older needed treatment for a substance use disorder, but only 4 million people received treatment. So only less than 20% of the people who are fighting a substance use disorder or alcoholism are actually getting the treatment they need for it. And then you factor in the relapse rate and it really shows you how big of an issue this is and how we need to have compassion for the people in our lives that are struggling with this. Um, They can't do it alone and um, they need your support and your understanding. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I'm making Chelsea cry guys. (laughs) It's, it's not, it's not your fault. Um, just, just as a person, I am very, very emotional. And because I am very visual and I imagine these scenarios and things like that, like for filming and other things, uh, I just get really empathetic and or I try to at least. And then I try to like put myself in maybe their shoes and kind of, well, you saw me. Yeah. But you were I'll- there at my house. What on day three of me getting sober? I just remember that you were offering to be there for anything I needed. And so I think one of the days you came and you checked up on me and you hung out with me for a few hours while I'm like laying there sweating and crying. And- oh, wait. <laughs> oh, wait. No, yeah. I, I'm, oh, gosh. I remember that now. <laughs> it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. No, it's not. It's not. Um, yeah. I was lucky enough that when I broke my spine, I was in San Francisco. And in San Francisco, they take the opioid crisis very seriously. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of places, you'll see people be given things like Vicodin, morphine, hydrocodone for because they have a toothache, like something Mm. very kind of benign. Mm. Um, Whereas in San Francisco, yes, they put me on all sorts of things the two weeks I was in the hospital, but they had all these rules around it. Like I couldn't take the same medication three times in a row because they were trying to prevent me creating a physical addiction to it. Mm. And then when I got out of the hospital, 
they put me on Vicodin, which considering the massive surgery I had, is that's a very mild opioid in comparison to what most people are being mm. prescribed. But that's how strongly they feel about it. And within, you know, I was only out of my back brace, I think, for a month when they were already trying to get me off of it. <laughs> okay. Let's bring a little levity in here. We're here not yes. to talk about addiction necessarily, no, but no, to no, talk no. about hashtag sober. Yes. Living in sobriety. Yes. And how that has changed our lives. Yes. And Amy's brought on a lovely guest for that. Do you want to introduce her, Amy? Absolutely. So I've brought in a fellow sister in sobriety, Sabrina. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. It's great to have um, somebody else here with their own experiences in this arena to share in this discussion. Mm -hmm. um, so Sabrina, do you want to open up a little bit about who you are and what you do and give my, some backstory? <laughs> my name is Sabrina Sanders. I grew up in Santa Clarita Valley, California. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I have three boys, a 19, 12-year-old, and a four-year-old. What a spread. <laughs> right? <laughs> a little bit. All boys? All boys. Wow. Oh, yes. And I'm done. <laughs> so when the four-year-old starts saying, am I going to get a little brother or sister? And you're just like, nope, you can have a hamster. Oh, we never talk about things like that. <laughs> we don't ever talk about things like that. So as Amy mentioned, you two are sobriety sisters. So how exactly did you two meet? If you don't mind me starting getting into that. So we actually met tonight. Oh, okay. So <laughs> yeah. See, I, didn't, I didn't even know about this. So we are both in a 12-step program. And since that is an anonymous program, it has been a little bit of a challenge finding somebody who is comfortable enough to share their experience in mm -hmm. such a public forum. So I reached out through um, a Facebook group, actually, that I am a part of. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, for women who are in sobriety. And I got lots of great responses from women who are willing to come on and share their experience with addiction. Mm -hmm. And so that was how I met Sabrina. But today's the first time we've been face to face. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for Sabrina for coming on. I'm Thank you I'm, so much for having me. I'm jazzed <laughs> in a sense. So Sabrina, if you don't mind me asking, maybe give a little summary or a short story of your addiction and recovery journey, if that is okay? That's fine. At 18, I had my first son and I started smoking a lot of marijuana. I needed to relax. I, 17 years old, having a baby. I didn't know how to juggle that life. I was still a teenager, didn't finish high school. Then I had a baby. <laughs> and um, it just progressed. I was on marijuana for a long time. And then about eight years ago, I was introduced to methamphetamines. And I was going through horrible, horrible relationships with men. And it was just my escape. It was my escape. It was my, I didn't have to feel anything anymore. And then it just spiraled out of control within like months. And I just... I was introduced to a whole new life on the streets, being homeless. I lost my apartments. My kids were with their dads. I was living in my car. And then I was introduced to heroin. And that was at the tail end of my two and a half years on hardcore drugs. And then shortly after that, I went ahead and went into an inpatient rehab mm -hmm. to get the help I needed. But it was all, my drug use was based on just me not wanting to to feel anything. In high school, I was, yeah. I was a bully in high school. I always had to prove something to somebody and I wasn't the nice girl. And my image was everything to me. I don't know why that is. I had a good group of friends, mm -hmm. but we were the, ex we were the group of friends that experimented with drugs. Hits a pot here and there, a drink here and there to later on leading up to the methamphetamines and heroin use. Wow. Sorry. I'm trying to wrap it all, kind of like seeing it play out in my head as best as possible, if that makes any sense. No, definitely. Trying, trying yeah. to visualize it all. My journey was a little bit reversed. Um, in high school, I was also very much about image. Um, I was Little Miss Overachiever. 
<laughs> and so um, <laughs> methamphetamines were actually my first love. Um, <laughs> and um, I got clean off of that when I was 20 and stayed off of that. But I didn't get totally clean. You know, I was still drinking. And the drinking is what then eventually, you know, started to turn my life to shambles, you know, in my early 30s. So um, I'm about, I am coming up on my two years sober. How long have you been sober now, Sabrina? Five years and some change. I'll be six years sober August 10th. Congratulations. congratulations. Thank yeah. you. And congratulations to you, too. Thank you. My sobriety <laughs> date is 420, and everybody always laughs about that. <laughs> and the thing is, is I was never a pot person. So, like, it really doesn't matter. But the funny thing is, is that I actually quit methamphetamines also on 420, I think, that year. Really? Yeah. I just figured, what better day? How You've already explained a little bit of your past, but how would you describe your life before being be, uh, pre-sober? Chaos. Complete chaos. Mm-hmm. I was working as a preschool teacher. I was juggling two kids and trying to make relationship work that wasn't working. (laughs) (laughs) So I just, I just could not manage my life at all. Mm -hmm. Even before the hard drug use, I wasn't managing my life. And it's so funny after you get sober, you start to realize that way before you became an addict or an alcoholic, you were already all of these things that make an alcoholic and an addict before you'd even touched a single drop of alcohol or a single drug like it really is predisposition Mm -hmm. that predisposition it exhibits in us um from the time we're born but like i said you know even growing up knowing um that i had a hundred percent potential of being an alcoholic and an addict it still didn't stop me from going out and as we say doing my own research (laughs) so um my dad has been sober now for 30 years So I grew up with a family that was very understanding of this disease and Mm -hmm. um, had a lot of support, which really helped then when I was ready to get help. So another question, when did it become aware to you that this was an addiction that you, you had to fight back, you had to take control of and to you know, reclaim your life in a sense. I don't mean to make it sound so dark that way, but I mean, it is dark though for us. It is. It's a, that was a dark time in life. That's for sure. I think that for me, it was my last time in jail and I was sitting in men's central jail on the women's side waiting to be released. And this had to be my fifth arrest for, you know, possession of drugs and paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. And I literally just, just was so sick and tired. I just didn't want to do this anymore. I didn't want to, I I was sick of being in and out of jail. I was sick of probation. I was sick of fines and letters in the mail for things I owed. And I just, I just didn't, I just couldn't do this anymore. I couldn't live like that anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't come from that kind of a family. My parents weren't addicts and and alcoholics, middle-class family in Santa Clarita, you know, I wasn't brought up that way. I, I really wasn't. And I just wanted to get back to that, that my norm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be back to my norm. And that was when I was, what, eight years old. Mm-hmm. I just wanted my mom. I wanted my family involved in my life. I thought it was so important. I needed to pick up the pieces. I needed to clean it up. Yeah, family can be a big part of kind of helping you get to the help that you need, like as Amy was talking about. Yeah, if you're lucky. Yeah. You're lucky. Yeah. Um, one actor that I very much admire is Michael J. Fox. And he struggled with alcoholism for a very long time. And I remember very clearly in one of his interviews that he said that the moment it hit for him is when he woke up after drinking and he was looking at his child and then he looked at his wife and his wife was not feeling sorry, was not feeling like, oh my gosh, what happened? She was just tired of it. She was tired of it all. And that was his sort of wake up call to be like, hey, I have to deal with this and progress forward and get sober. Yeah. She was done co-signing his bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It seems like, it seems like the collective uh, theme is like being tired of it, being over, over of it and just like kind of being done. It's like, kind of like when you're beat down to the very end of the finish line Mm -hmm. before you, picking yourself back up. Exactly. I was beat down. 
for sure. That was, <laughs> that was the feeling. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you get, start getting to the recovery process and you are getting the help that you need for people that are friends and family that may not be as well-versed regarding, you know, the situation and what you're going through, what are things that they can do to help or to better understand so that way they can be a better support network for you when you can't get the support for maybe the group that you're going for at times? I think understanding. I think even if you don't understand addiction Mm -hmm. of any sort, I think just the, uh, you know, try to educate yourself a little bit, you know, showing empathy. For me, it's, it's a similar patience and understanding. I think too many times people don't really understand that this is a disease, that Mm -hmm. this is a disease of the body and it's a disease of the mind. It's a mental disorder. It's a combination. Yeah. It's a combo and that we're not really capable of controlling that. It's something that we're born with and that we have to learn to live with. And to live with in a way that we can stay sober and be a positive force in the lives of the people around us. Mm -hmm. And that it's not as simple as just stopping doing something. In my late 20s, my my parents were visiting at one point. Mm -hmm. And um, I was drunk one night and I was upset about something. And I shared with my mom how much... I still craved methamphetamines, even though I'd been clean off of it for, you know, almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even though my mom is very familiar with alcoholism and addiction, because she doesn't actually have it, she still didn't quite understand and it blew her away. And she went out and she said to my dad, she's like, do you know that your daughter still wakes up every day having to tell herself that she's not going to do those drugs. And my dad, that wasn't a shock for him because he has this disease. (laughs) He lives with it. But for my mom, it kind of blindsided her. I think Mm -hmm. for her, she thought, you know, because I had gotten clean off of it, that I was okay. And no, I still was struggling with it. Mm -hmm. Now, now that I'm clean off of alcohol, I struggle with it a lot less, but that doesn't mean that I don't think about it sometimes. It's just, it's, it's scary. (laughs) Yeah. It's scary to kind of think of how in a way, it's like you're not in control, if that makes any sense. I think that's what's scary about it, just how I'm, oh gosh, I'm getting, I'm getting teary-eyed again. And <laughs> it's just, all about control. Yeah, it's all about control. And that's and the to, thing is we want to have control. Yeah. We want to have control over our lives, over our emotions, and that's why we drink and use. And in the reality is we have no control. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like I've stated in other episodes before, the brain is such a complicated I don't want to say piece of meat, but a piece, but a piece of matter. It really is so complicated. Yeah, don't go Hannibal Lecter on us. <laughs> Good thing I already ate before I got here. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Anyways, no, the brain, the brain can create these, like you were talking about how the rewiring of like the brain based on right. what you consume, uh, the brain can create things that are real that aren't. And they can kind of, in a way, trick you into needing these things or seeing these things or wanting these things when in reality, it's better that you don't thrive off it. So it's the brain can be your friend, but it also can be your worst enemy. I mean, the script that you and I are working on to put oh, in yeah. production yeah. deals with those it, inner demons. Yes, a lot. Yeah, that's how I call my depression, inner demons. That yes, right. it deals with a lot with depression and kind of like making your and just them telling you that you're not good enough and that you're never amount to anything and that kind of thing. Even when you're in a very comfortable situation, it just piles and piles and piles. Very similar mental disorder. Yeah. All right. So Sabrina, if you don't mind me asking, how did you feel the first few days or few weeks when you were starting the recovery process or getting into the program? Like how was that for you as compared to like further down the line when you started going there more regularly? Hopefully I'm phrasing that right. (laughs) Sure. I cried all the way into rehab. <laughs> to my inpatient, I cried. When asked why I was crying, I really I didn't have an answer. I don't know why I was crying. <laughs> the only thing I, I was leaving my best friend drugs behind. I was right. trying to start something new. It's a big breakup. And mm-hmm. I think I wasn't gonna be there long. In my head, I was like, I'm just gonna appease my mom. 
right, right. Mm-hmm. go in, you know? And I'll detox, I'll get a clean bill of health, and then I'll be out there again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had like I I I didn't know what I was thinking. I was thinking so many different things. And and then like the first couple days, a couple girls, it was an all um girl inpatient. Mm-hmm. And um we clicked right away. A couple of these girls and myself, we clicked right away and it just made it a lot easier. And day in and day out, there's no when you're in an inpatient recovery program, there isn't um, a locked door. You are free to come and go. So every day I'd wake up, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. <laughs> every day I'm going to go for like two weeks. But these two women helped me stay. Yeah. Just mm. by being a present, a, a positive presence in my life at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then about, you know, three, four weeks in, it was, I was feeling good. I was feeling clear headed. I was laughing. I, it was like summer camp. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like, an, yeah, an all girl summer camp. And it brought me back to life and it helped, they helped me bring me back to life. So that was, that was, it was the best thing I could have done for myself. So, following question What are some of the struggles that you think people don't openly talk about regarding? addiction and the recovery process and like the struggles going through even after you, you know, are out and you have to progress this journey alone. I think being honest with yourself, I think a lot of people have a hard time with that Mm -hmm. fresh out of recovery or whatever. We're still trying to put that, that best face forward, that image. Yes. That image for sure. And I think a hard thing too, is just, you know, Changing your surroundings, that's really hard for people. It's not easy just to get up and move. It's mm-hmm. not easy to not talk to the person you've been talking to for years or even months that you've been around forever. You want to go back out and reconnect to show people how good you're doing. Right. Yeah. And we want to show off a little bit. Yeah. But <laughs> we still need to kind of cut away the people that are going to bring us back down. Yeah, learning what is toxic, setting our boundaries. That's a huge thing. That was probably my hardest thing was setting boundaries. I've always been a people pleaser. I have oh, the same girl. issue. Always. Have you met me? <laughs> <laughs> you can't be a people pleaser because you'll never please everyone. No. You can't. It's impossible. That is absolutely impossible. What's one piece of advice or statement that has stuck with you throughout this recovery process that, you know, has helped confidence or make it a little bit easier for you? One day at a time. At first you hear this and it's, they, they say these cliches that you always hear constantly, but five years and some change in, I still think about those phrases and it's a huge impact in my life. Mm-hmm. All of those. One of the ones that we say all of the time actually came up in our hashtag hunt a few weeks ago and it was don't leave before the miracle happens. Oh yes, that's right. I was going to say that one too, but yes, <laughs> yes, it, it's, it's real. It's real. And it's definitely a one that could be applied to a lot of things, not just exactly. every aspect of your life. It's about having patience, persistence, positivity. It's all of those things, no matter what three your P's. goal is. <laughs> yes, you exactly. Said three Ps. Three Ps now. Three, three Ps. Ps. Persistence and positivity. <laughs> and maybe the fourth one, prevail. <laughs> <laughs> we will prevail. We will prevail. Right? Indeed. But, I mean, it can be applied to any goal in your life if you are patient and persistent and positive. Mm-hmm. You know, miracles do happen. We will, you will see the change in your life that you are trying to affect. How how ironic is that, that those simple things can be applied to like everything. Right. I mean, look at Kimmy from hashtag zero waste. Mm -hmm. She really thought about that. This was an important cause to her and she is now seeing the fruits of her labors just in the changes in her own life. All the people that come up to her and say that they have changed things in their lives to go more towards creating zero waste mm-hmm. because of her, because of the example that she has set. Yeah. I mean, you've got your McDonald's cup here with your <laughs> reusable with straw. straw. I have it right here, ladies and gentlemen. So writing off that statement, actually, Sabrina, do you find more people coming up to you um, for help regarding this or for thanking you for helping with their recovery process. I'm just curious, since this is five years and some change, six years. 
I think that in my early recovery, for sure, I love to jump in when newcomers, you know, would come in or, you know, I would meet somebody else that was struggling. I think I was more inclined to offer the help. Mm-hmm. If, you know, I, lo- I love to give my story. I really, truly do. So, Sabrina, you probably have already discussed this a little bit, but I would like to know, how is your life now sober? How has it changed in sobriety? It's changed by I become more responsible. I've grown up. Um, I don't bullshit anymore. There's no bullshit left in me. I think um, I'm as real as it gets with my sobriety. I'm able to manage my life, juggle being a mom, having my part-time job, and being in a decent relationship. I think those were the, some super main focuses of my life that I needed to let go in order to gain them back and be more productive and more positive in my life. And it's working. So I'm doing what's working. <laughs> I'm going with what's working. And it is. I'm, I'm much more responsible. My mom tells me all the time. I, I can see it in myself, too. <laughs> but I manage money better. You know, I, I juggle life. I juggle life. I mean, I found that I am a much better me. In sobriety. Yeah. Like, I was pretty good at my job before, and now I'm, like... Kicking ass. I'm a rock star now. (laughs) (laughs) But um, my mom definitely brings it up all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And she's glad I got sober. Um, And I have other friends in my life who just every once in a while, just kind of out of the blue, will say something about how they're so glad that I'm sober now. So I don't know what it was that they were seeing, Mm -hmm. uh, because so many people could not see my hot mess. I was a (laughs) high functioning addict and it was all hidden behind closed doors. I am able to meet my maximum potential now that I am sober. I agree. I can, I, I'm much more able to reach my goals, my long-term goals, my short-term goals. I, I can see this new person. I was introduced to this new person that I never knew before. And it's a good, it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. I don't think I would be anywhere near reaching my life goals that we talk about every week on this show Mm -hmm. if I wasn't sober. Though I can't relate with the sobriety thing, I definitely feel like I can relate in a way that definitely when I was younger, I was much more depressed. I was, I realized that I had a lot more anxiety and all these different things that I didn't put a label for because I couldn't. And I was just a very overstressed over emotional young girl that didn't know how to handle everything. And so just recently, as I've been like working out and doing all these things that take productive steps towards my goals, people have mentioned these, these things to me. And it's like, how was I this? And now I'm this, I I don't see the connection. So it's just, it's startling. Right. It's It's startling. That's a great word for it. Mm -hmm. Five years. I was so different. (laughs) like I don't even recognize that person like (laughs) oh it's hard yeah you almost don't recognize yourself and that's one of the reasons why I love this show that we do is that I hope we can help other people refocus themselves so that way they can reach their goals their dreams Mm -hmm. Uh, because even just doing this show and being accountable to our listeners from week to week Mm -hmm. has help Chelsea and I to be <laughs> more productive, to take more steps towards the things that we want to do in life. Yeah. The last couple of shows that we've done, it's it's had me come to terms with a couple of things that I've been dealing with and I've been struggling with myself too, uh, offline and other things like that. And then also because I'm not the best speaker or the best talker and things like that, um, it helps me refocus, rechannel and practice in a way for... Yeah things like that. So. Every week is this challenge and yeah. you know what? It's preparing us for life. Yeah. And life is happening every day with or without us. Yeah. And and life w- happens after addiction. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. It's, it's like what they tell you with like there's life outside of high school. There's life outside of college. Again, I don't mean to do the whole over everything, but that is kind of what it is. Like in each category, there yes. is a way to get sober in a sense, not yes. just alcohol is right drug it's, it's, it's everything again, it's that idea of refocusing and um turning your lens in the proper direction mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so now sober, what are some of the struggles or instances that you feel that you can run into sometimes? Would it be some of the toxic things that you cut out that come back? Are there other snags or bumps on the road? Insecurities. Like Is it? <laughs> I still have them. I yes. still have them. I call it, I gained my, th- my sober 30 pounds <laughs> and then I immediately got pregnant. <laughs> oh God. And oh. so, yeah. And so that's insecurity was already there, but then it has just, it's, it's, boiled over into, you mm-hmm. know, five years down the road, I'm still that insecure person, mm-hmm. insecure about my weight, insecure, you know, a failure. I am so scared of failure. Uh, hello. Like I need over to go back here. to school. I want to go back to school, but can I do this? Like <laughs> I'm so terrified. I don't know. No, I, I, I'm this, I'm the same way. I mean, I'm sometimes I may not look it, but there's like, um, help. Like sometimes I will reach out to Amy or Marcus or Nico be like, I'm about to do this, but I don't know. Like, um, <laughs> she just validation. Definitely. I need yes, it. Do that. Yes. Send that text. No, tell that boss you can't work today. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. You know what? And it helps to have people who can be that sounding board that can help push us when we know what we should be doing, but we're too scared to do it. Mm-hmm. But there's also a fine line to um, annoying them with constant things. And they're like, you, you got to figure out this shit on your own, girl. Just right. don't bother me. It has to be right. on you. So it's tough to find that balance. Yeah, sometimes I'm looking when you're for that validation, mess. but not really. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe more validation for myself that I know I'm smart enough. I know I can do these things. Mm-hmm. I just need to try. I need to go and do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So final question. What do you feel... You have gained the most out of the recovery process and being sober. I open up to both of you guys. Knowledge on addiction. Mm-hmm. And I think the some of the experience of where yeah. I don't want to be again. Right. See, I had the knowledge early that, you know, that was yeah. not the lesson I got in recovery. For me, I've actually gained a lot more confidence in myself and my value and I am a little bit less of a people pleaser now. Like I still want to please people, but boundary setting, that was a huge lesson for me too. And I would say that boundary setting has been probably the number one lesson I've learned. That's good. That's a, that's a good takeaway. I'll say it's my number one too. It was hard for me to set boundaries. I set them today and it's okay if, if they're not happy, you know what? (laughs) it's fine. (laughs) And it's a lesson we learn over and over again. And Mm -hmm. so it's like every couple of months, a lot of times there are certain people around them that every couple of months I have to reset those boundaries Mm -hmm. and that's okay. But it's huge progress that I even notice that. Mm -hmm. And then I realize, okay, I, it's time to reset those boundaries again. Mm -hmm. This needs to be good for me too. Mm -hmm. Again, you can't make everyone happy and you can't be everything to everyone no but what's the first thing the most important thing you can do is make yourself healthy and happy self-care yeah self-care it's a good it's yeah it's a good selfish all right well (laughs) i think i think we've dived pretty well into the vortex we did and we came back up and surface surface up in the sun all right so i guess moving on Hashtag hunt? Yeah, hashtag hunt. Alrighty, hashtag hunt. Basically, as everyone who listens at this point right now, we take the title of our episode, we put it in the Twitter, the Instagram, the Tumblr. I love how she calls it the Twitter. <laughs> On all the social media platforms, we put hashtag sober, and these are the results that we have come up with. Sober slash clean people are some of the most amazing people I have ever met in my life. We as addicts don't do anything in moderation. We are all the way at the bottom or all the way to the top. So when we are hashtag sober, we can hashtag love and care like no one else can. Hashtag recovery. Hashtag we do recover. That's awesome. I can relate to the all the way to the bottom, the top emotional wise. So Right, right. Yeah. It's always extremes one way or the other. Yeah. Off to AA this eve. First one. Nervous. Even feel like a fraud in this respect. Hope I don't accidentally say... My name is Chris, and I'm a giant twat. Hashtag sober. (laughs) (laughs) I like that's the word that they use, twat, instead of something else. Could have been anything. So today I have been hashtag sober for 100 days. I'm way more productive. My running has improved, but zero social life without alcohol. 
I do feel a bit isolated in my decision to be sober, to not being invited to a party that everyone else is going to. There's a comedian I listen to who talks about when he got sober and he goes to parties. He's like, when you get sober, no one knows what to serve you. He's mm. like, they'll be like, uh, we got water. Uh, I can see what else in the fridge. I know you don't drink. It's like, <laughs> I've got this old turnip. I know you don't drink. It's like people just don't know how to how to handle it. And so it is a bigger challenge for some people versus others. Uh, for me, I it wasn't too difficult because mm-hmm. um, the social setting I was actually fine in. Yeah. So I was able to adjust to going out sober a lot yeah. easier than a lot of people do. Yeah. If anything, just maybe have some soda in the fridge. I find it the same. I didn't have a problem like that. I When I would go out, it wasn't a big deal for me. Right. And mm-hmm. But I wasn't surrounded by my old friends and people either. Yeah, I think it's a lot tougher for um, people getting sober in like their early 20s when the going clubbing, going to bars is a huge such thing. part of the culture of just that age demographic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A list of things that one wants to do in life is a hashtag bucket list. What would you put on yours? First on ours is hashtag staying sober. That's very nice. Yeah, if you're in recovery, like you really, that has to be the first thing. It's number one. <laughs> it has yes. to be number one. Otherwise, everything else won't happen. One benefit of being clean is that in the event of a zombie apocalypse, I will be stressing about finding dope. I've never thought about that before, but that is a great <laughs> thing. Like we think about how much time we spend um, thinking about looking for purchasing drugs or alcohol. That would be a huge time saver in the zombie apocalypse. One year, four months sober today. I never thought I could achieve so much in that time. I work every day on self-improvement through exercise, art, music, long walks through nature, reading, attending therapy, and family meetings land. You know what? It's all working. Yes. Hashtag sober. Seriously, when we get sober, all of a sudden, life gets big, as they say. Mm -hmm. Um... And we have the time to really enjoy it and be present in it. Yes. It's definitely a lot, a lot more meaningful. Something will grow from all you are going through, and it will be you. Yay! Yay! Yeah, that's the short and sweet to the point. It's kind of like a haiku. Yeah, that, I feel like that's a great note to end on. Yes, that is very great. Fantastic. And if any of you have your thoughts and comments regarding hashtag sober, you can reach and follow us at Life Goals Pod on our Instagram, our Facebook, and our Twitter. We would love to hear your responses and your thoughts regarding all this. So, yeah, yeah. Because that's what we're that's what we're all about here at hashtag Life Goals is growing and yes. growing ourselves and. I think this was a great episode to do Mm because this is something that has been a huge huge transformation in my life. But um, we couldn't have done this episode alone. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for coming on and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, before we go, we still have to go through challenges. Yes, we do. So our last episode, Hashtag Vegan, my friend, Avery Schlereth, who works her ass off in health and fitness, gave us the challenge to try to be gluten-free for till the next time we recorded. I will go first. I definitely tried very hard. The, I think I lasted about three or four days before the weekend is where I cracked because that was the end of my stress period and I just, I needed, I needed something. And then I found that my weakness was breakfast because that's when I normally have my eggs and some sort of carb and milk and orange juice. When I didn't have that, it was when I started to get a little stir crazy. But I definitely found myself looking at the labels of everything more to see, is this gluten-free? Like, could I go for this? So, Well, yeah. you did way better than I did. Oh, oh that's right. <laughs> so day one, you know, I made a major effort when I made a big lunch that day that was then mm-hmm. going to also be my dinner to take the gluten out of the meal. So instead of doing pasta, I did quinoa as the base for the meal. And I had all my vegetables. But throughout the day, there were small things like, like I grabbed a Slim Jim and I read the ingredients and gluten was in there very low on the list. 
But I was like, eh, that doesn't really count. It's like we're greedy at 19. There's like nothing in this Slim Jim. Oh, <laughs> then I get to work and there's a chocolate pudding pie in the fridge. And I'm like, is there, I ask Alexa, I'm like, is there gluten in pie crust? And she's like, yes, there's gluten in pie crust. And I'm like, eh, I don't care. And I ate two bites of it anyway. And then I get home. And I decided to make a brownie in a cup. And I'm like, I know there's gluten in this. <laughs> and so no. I was like, all right, I'm just going to try for like the meals that I cook be gluten free. And then within another 24 hours that had completely gone out the window, I actually sent the producers and Chelsea a text <laughs> with a picture of a giant <laughs> Domino's pizza on my lap in the car. And I said, sorry, not, not sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, as much as, as much as bread can be my weakness, mm-hmm. I, I really need it. Like without it, I don't have as much energy. Yeah. And I also realized, you know, when Avery talked about that, whenever you change your diet, you have to really want it or it's not going to work. Yeah. I didn't want it. Mm-hmm. I don't care about cutting gluten out of my life. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it didn't stick. Yeah. But um, I can't even say that I barely tried. So uh, <laughs> this was a full on failure for me. Yeah. It was so funny because I sent Chelsea and Nico and Marcus the picture of my pizza and Chelsea immediately responded back with her own empty pizza box yes but, but she had done a gluten crust yes i had did, i crust. did gluten-free domino's pizza uh, but i was very very stressed the night that i ate the whole thing in one sitting so, so that's was bad I on my part eat, i only ate three pieces of my domino's i pizza, ate the whole thing but it was full of gluten yeah <laughs> no i will say i actually the gluten-free i actually really like like sometimes okay. i like that nice like crunchiness rather than kind of the gluten yeah i feel like with me because of last week when we talked about like my 23 me report might have like celiac disease and things like that and there are times when i've noticed that i have some digestive issues unless i have definitive proof i may not do the complete change but there's definitely times when okay maybe don't go for this or don't go for that maybe find gluten-free options so maybe you're thinking about more of like limiting your gluten exactly limiting it like mainly for breakfast like breakfast is the main weakness that i have regarding gluten other throughout the day it's like very much fine because i can have my fruits and vegetables i can have my gluten-free chips (laughs) the mexican style it's just made of like steam salt and like corn starch oh i never even made it to the store to buy the gluten-free pasta that i talked about (laughs) (laughs) just did not even happen so sorry avery very 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 sorry but keeping it keeping it in rotation keeping irritation but really yes and hey i'm just being honest about it Gluten's, no and i'm, that I'm glad free is not important to me so that's why it didn't stick so she's right if it's not important with, to you you will not stick with that diet give me gluten or give me death and that was also what i responded to the pizza <laughs> picture with. that is well that means we we owe each other a movie so we do all right i already know yours uh, okay and i know and i know mine for you if you haven't seen it yet Okay. Well, I know that you have seen bits and pieces of this movie, but I keep telling you that that doesn't count as seeing it. So, yeah, um, obviously. so this is the week that I'm assigning it to you. Okay. Another movie from my top five, mm-hmm. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes, finally. Now I have a reason to watch it. I yes. mean, I've always had a reason to watch it. I love Kate Winslet. I love Jim Carrey. I love all the other actors that are in it. I just have never committed to it. <laughs> so now I have the commitment. Sabrina is like, like laughing at she's me. Dying. Just like She's dying. So cute. Oh, thank you i don't get heard about that often so, so i look forward to reviewing that with you next week because yeah. that has been in my top five that was actually the movie that squeezed out the butterfly effect from my top five nice yeah no i'm, I'm excited i it probably will be one of the what be like um when i watch the place beyond the pines i've only seen that movie once and i was was bawling like a mess afterwards and i haven't watched it since so it might give me the same effect but just in a different aspect and a different trajectory so fabulous Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So anything I can do to please. Oh, wait, I'm not supposed to do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, my movie for you also has Kate Winslet in it. Oh, what is it? It's called The Dressmaker. Have you heard of it? I have. I have seen 
half of it. I have not seen the whole thing. Okay. Because Leota so, was watching it at my house one day and I kind of came in and out. So I never got to see the whole thing. Okay. So, <laughs> so the yeah. dressmaker. So the dressmaker, for those that don't know, Kate Winslet plays an Australian woman that is like a well-known dressmaker throughout Australia. And she goes back to her like farm, home, little shitty town <laughs> with her mother that it might be a little bit delirious. And all the townsfolks are a little bit against her because she might have been involved in a certain death when she was younger. And it's a very funny yet dramatic movie about going through kind of confronting your past and people... That you whole know. you can't go home again kind of feeling. Exactly. And then like people like maybe accepting you, but then like hiding like their flaws and like their real intentions and things like that. And then finding those people that truly care. Now this week's challenge. So yes. I, as you know, I have a very busy week coming up because I'm about mm-hmm. to go into production for several days. Um, you're going to be out of town for your birthday. Yes. Our producers are going to be out of town. So we have a little bit of a longer period, but that doesn't actually mean we have more time to get things done. Yeah, yeah. So my goal between now and the next time we record is I need to pull together the paperwork from the shoot that I'm about to do, the shoot that I just did, and the last shoot I did at the end of last year. I need to pull together the necessary paperwork from those three shoots to put into my binder for the DGA application. So that the amount of paperwork that I have to provide to them with my 520 days on set is really big. And even though I have all of it, it's all over the place. And I'm not always good at after a shoot. I should, that's when it's easiest. Just gather those documents and put them in the binder. So my goal is to put the last three films I worked on to get all of their DGA related application paperwork together and put it in my DGA binder. All right. Okay. So for me, hmm, I honestly did not, did not think of any, but what's popping into my mind right now is rewriting the next film that we're going to work on together, Amy. Okay. Because uh, that was, we met up, you gave me your notes, and I said I was going to rewrite it. And unfortunately, shenanigans have gotten in the way, so I haven't touched it in a while. So maybe, not maybe, this week and till the next time we record, I will have the time to sit down and do another rewrite. Awesome. I will hopefully be closer to, you know, production ready. Right. In a sense. It, 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 my, I'll, I'll be away for my birthday and things like that. But now that I don't have to focus on the rewrite of a feature length script yeah. and have to just start over again with my next one, I can focus a little bit more time on the short film. So. Yeah. You have a nice little breather. Little bit. Well, on that note, I think that has been a wonderful episode. It's been fantastic. And everybody remember, I'm Chelsea Wingo. And I'm Amy Covell. And this has been Hashtag, Hashtag Life Goals. Goals. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye.